This is Robbie Ferguson of Immutable X. I'm the next generation of Web3 games. I'm up next on Edge of NFT, where they're powering the next generation of NFT experts. Stay tuned to chat about Web3 games, the future of economics, and player ownership. Hi, NFT curious listeners. Stay tuned for today's episode to learn what you can order when you're at the Burning Man Hug Deli. How our guest today, Sana, might be strengthening the power of his already too powerful brain. And how NFT street teams can act as community guerrilla marketing. And don't forget, we put together a gathering called NFTLA just a few months back that brought out thousands of the world's most innovative doers in the NFT space. Head on over to nftla.live to get tickets to our bigger, bolder, better, but also just as intimate and impactful event happening in Los Angeles, March 20th to the 23rd, 2023. We'll see you there. Welcome to the Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger. The podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side, and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Today's episode features Robbie Ferguson, president and co-founder of Immutable, a rapid growth tech startup hailing from Australia. He started Immutable in 2018 at the ripe age of 21 and has been featured as a part of Forbes 30 Under 30. Notably, Robbie was also awarded the Teal Fellowship in 2020. Immutable is a $2.5 billion NFT platform, which has raised more than $300 million from Temasek, Tencent, Galaxy Digital, and Coinbase. As a global blockchain technology company, its mission is to bring asset ownership and commerce alive in digital worlds through the power of immutable, aka unchangeable NFTs. Robbie previously built an automated capital gains tax platform at KPMG. I don't know how he fit the rest of this stuff in, which you'll hear, which was licensed to Australia's largest cryptocurrency exchange after graduating high school as the equal highest ranked student in Australia with a perfect ATAR, which for you non-Australians is the Australian tertiary admission rank, has become obsessed with Ethereum. And in 2015, he dropped out of a computer science law degree at the University of Sydney to found Immutable. And the Immutable Group is a advancing the world of NFTs through Immutable X, an industry-leading layer two NFT minting and trading platform, plus Immutable Studios, an NFT game development studio with leading titles, Gods and Changed, and Guild of Guardians. Finally, Robbie believes that future generations will spend most of their working hours in virtual reality and wants to ensure the digital worlds they live in are as economically meaningful as the one we currently inhabit. So Robbie Ferguson, welcome to Edge of NFT. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much. I'm great to be here. Awesome. So earlier this year, you launched a whopping $500 million fund to boost gaming on Immutable X. Wow. Can you share some project highlights and favorite moments since embarking on this journey to build true in-game economies? Yeah, of course. I mean, that was, I think, a really big moment for us and hopefully for the industry in terms of supporting high quality games with true economies, which is what we've always been focused on. And honestly, the last year has been pretty insane for the company. We've gone from 80 people to over 300 full-time today. We've gone from, uh, I think, about five games building our platform to basically over 100 meaningful funded deals today and then thousands in our testing environment. And over half of those have been won in the last quarter. 
Um, so the trajectory of this is really, really steep. I probably can't go over all the individual games that I'm excited about, but there are a ton from publishers that I think are just super exciting, whether it's Ambersword or Alluvium, which is one of the biggest Web3 games in the world right now, whether it's Planet Quest or Invu, um, which is actually one of the largest legacy, almost grey marketplace economies in the world. And one of the cool things I love about Invu is all of their monetization has been through secondary clips. So they've been kind of trying to recreate in Web2 what I think the future of a lot of monetization in Web3 is going to be for gaming, which is instead of selling assets and then deprecating those assets later and sort of having this exploitative cycle, it's create a valuable economy over time and take clips on it and have the exact same incentives as your players. It's then migrating all future assets over to um, IMX, which is really exciting and I think will be one of the most played games basically from day one is as soon as that transition is complete over the next few months. We have the CEO of Riot Games Asia dropping out and making a, a MOBA startup on Immutable, which is, is super exciting. I think we have now four MOBAs on the platform, so there's a definitely lean into competing with some of the biggest Web 2 titles. Um, we have some pretty open economics and metaverse plays as well, um, which I'm really excited on, on probably the more long-term user-generated content building perspective. So I can dive into any of those, but overall, I think there's been a huge amount of games building on the platform over the last six months, which I'm really, really excited to support. Awesome. It started with a card game and then it's 50. Have you on 50 plus in Q3? That's yeah, huge. 50 plus basically. And yeah, exactly. Since I think the last four months, which is basically more than the rest of the lifetime of the company combined. But as I said, what our goal really is, is build a product which is completely permissionless. So anyone can come and build a game. Aglet, which I think has hundreds of thousands or even millions of players, I believe, built on our self-serve. And we didn't even know they were building on us until we kind of found out their usage. And of course, when it's at high and started supporting them. But I think that's the power of making it ridiculously easy to build on. But then all of these games that we've won are, are games that we're going out and deliberately believing will have a successful future because ultimately gaming is power law driven, which means that the most successful game will have more players or revenue typically than the rest combined. That's generally how gaming economics kind of falls out. And Web3 is going to be that bit even more so. The first few games, which is that million daily active player bases, will define the economics, the game design, and the playbooks that everyone else is going to so it's actually a really important precedent setting moment. And we want to make sure those games do it right. And we want to help them succeed. Yeah, you've been really hands-on with that. Let me take a quick minute because I just realized we got to introduce our co-hosts here. <laughs> we had a nice full introduction of Robbie, but you've heard from them before. If you're the podcast listener, you're like, who was that? Who was that? I was just asking the question. So that was Ben Noble of How Labs. And they're a Web3 lab that's done all kinds of wonderful stuff and sort of helping to build projects and spread the word about them. And then we do have another co-host today, Zach Sekar, who is our head of production of NFTLA. So we're happy to have them here participating today. Jeff and Josh couldn't make it. And Ben, we found out after inviting him to join us today that you actually have a past relationship with Robbie. Can you explain a little bit about how you came across him previously? I herald him every time I'm in a space and somebody's like, how did you really fall in love with NFTs? And I'm like, I talked to Robbie. I was at a conference and I was listening to him talk and I think I came up to him and was like, I want to do your PR because he was going through like gods and chain and really demonstrating the first iteration of what he saw as a valuable economic system within this Web3 universe. And the first one that like to me made sense. And we talked a lot about how other games could get involved and some of the things that I had doubts in my mind, he really filled in those gaps. So Anybody who's listening, this is probably one of the best minds to just probe and 
especially if you're in the play and earn space or if how are we framing it now because we've kind of changed the dialogue in that since we last discussed as well but i do see you guys at the forefront of this and have been excited to bring projects over to your platform and then even platforms that are struggling on existing blockchain i've seen them migrating over to you guys as you do a really great job walking them through the process so yeah and likewise yeah have known ben for a while it's been awesome to work with and i don't know what they're you know there's many labels i think the fact we have so much discussion about labels is a counter signal I think ultimately it shouldn't have to be called anything. It should just be the tech that's running under the hood and whatever category the industry refers to is, is fine. But gamers don't really need to know this. They just need to understand the value. Yeah, I agree. And you've been great about like debunking some of the jargon that we use and getting right to the brass tacks of what does it do and why is it interesting? Yeah, calling it blockchain gaming just puts it in a box, whereas gamers just want to have a great time. And for, after about maybe 12 years in the their startup software innovation world, what I've found is that almost always it's the game developers who, if not know what's happening first, more likely they're actually making it happen. It sounds like a frivolous kind of world of video games. Like it might not be the most serious area, but it's almost always where a lot of the innovation happens first. So it's fun to have, you know, someone like Robbie on here to talk to. Gaming and the military domain. Interestingly enough. <laughs> Same thing, right? In the simulation. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they pushed that for a while. The marketing engine of the military was like, they want gamers now because gamers are flying the drones and stuff. But like, I mean, it speaks to how multifaceted you have to be to step into gaming and really figure out like all the different components that make something successful. Can you speak to that, Robbie? You talk about like the games that you guys are onboarding, what are they doing to invoke that mass adoption and how are they getting and drilling into those points that make people go, oh, this is something I want to be involved with? Yeah, I think there's probably a few ways. I think the first is the user experience being extremely accessible. So our view as a company, and I think a view with a lot of the games building on us is that uninteresting is the extremely expensive luxury collectibles, and all of these emergent financial ecosystems will happen and they are very meaningful, but it's putting the cart before the horse to have them be first. What must come first is actual utility and players just trading items that they want to use in the game because it looks awesome, gives them power, allows them to create guilds or interact or have fun with. And really that means we have to make it ridiculously easy to onboard, to earn your first assets without even knowing it's crypto. And also, that the economy that you're building this with has to be completely secure. Because the only couple of examples of viral growth we've had today have suffered some sort of collapse at some point in time because they've kind of been reliant on um, demand that was propped up on future demand rather than being inherently sustainable. The other thing a lot of these games are doing is leveraging the community in order to create content or, or kind of create growth. I think this is really exciting. I think one of the key value propositions of Web3 is empowering user-generated content to create future forms of games. I think we'll see limited use cases of this over the next couple of years, but over time, this will grow. And so, I mean, if you look at the fastest growing platforms or games of the last couple of decades, they're platforms, right? They're games like Roblox or like Minecraft. And I bet Microsoft, which they've gone down the path of Roblox, because it's proving that more flexible economics and more flexible tool sets for people to build games is actually a long-term superior uh, business model because you can just capture so much value of, of a developer ecosystem. So I think there are some games that are going to go down that path over time. Games like Alluvium, where they're sharing not only IP, 
but also asset economics between multiple instances of games are really interesting examples of solving these kinds of problems. And so that would maybe be the final piece, which is gaming is traditionally limited by at its cap, if you make the best game in the world, it's how large is the demand for that genre, the audience for that genre. And Web3 is kind of solving this because we can have multiple games, multiple genres, all sharing underlying assets and all sharing underlying intellectual property, which means you can now have megaverses or mega games, or I think IBGs, which is what the Illuvium team calls the more um, interactive, interoperable blockchain games, where the same asset economies can be used to power multiple ones. And so these are a few of the tactics we're seeing games to take things mainstream today. Yeah, with the big mega universes, and it's funny because we're starting to see them built out and it feels like they're independent, but I'm really excited to see those cross ecosystem dynamics play out. Do you think that also has a lot of power from retention? Because the way I've thought about video games in the past is you're platforming and deplatforming. So your audience has to leave and they have to come back in. You're creating friction points. So as soon as you get rid of those friction points and you say, oh, no, you can navigate from one location to the other, you can take more measured marketing that converts to sales and economics. But how does that play into things like microtransactions? Like how big are the price tags on these environments and what is a realistic entry point for people getting involved? Is it I started free and then I start to build or how are we going about that? Yeah. So you've said two very good points there, I think, which I'll touch on. The first is how do we solve the problem of transferring users between one gaming property to another? And this is one of the biggest problems the Web2 industry faces. Supercell can make a multi-billion dollar hit, which completely king makes them as a mainstream mobile developer. And they can struggle to make a new one because very little of that audience will transfer over. The power of aggregators like the App Store or like Steam is that they own the user experience of discovery of new content, and they make it frictionless for users to transfer between games. But they don't make it tremendously easy for developers to migrate those audiences. And so one of the key problems this solves is traditionally games have a lifetime. This is just the reality of games. Very few games have sort of longevity beyond five, 10 years. The majority of these would be MMORPGs, which are live updated and service-based games and economies. The problem is this means inherently the money you spend, even if it's real and tradable, will have some terminal value. We'll have some sort of endpoint to when people will want to find demand or utility for those assets. Web3 can solve this and solve this adoption problem at the same time, which is you can say, well, hey, if you have skins or characters in Clash Royale or Clash of Clans, you can get them in Supercell's new game, or you can get them in the latest version of The Sims or Call of Duty Warzone 2, where there was a big controversy because they nuked, excuse the pun, all of the assets from Warzone 1. And so I think that solves the problem of both how do you create longevity for economics, but also how do you transfer audiences? And then I think your second question is barrier to entry for these users. Ultimately, I have perspectives on this, but this is where creators will create new game designs. Like Web3 is not a particular game design. It is a principle of property ownership and shared economic ownership for assets inside of games. There will be a huge spectrum of games built on this from pretty limited subsets of, say, tradable cosmetics in what is otherwise a fairly standard game to entire games where 100% of the revenue is, for example, owned by players, Alluvian, or all of the content is generated by the players, which are some of the metaverses being built today. So even sort of crazier versions where people could be purchasing studios or 
running the governance for the creation of future gains. And so I think monetization is going to come down to what kind of business model are you implementing? Personally, we are really bullish right now on minimizing the barrier to entry as much as possible, creating economics that is sustainable, where you can be giving out value, but ensuring that that value is completely sustained by the increase in retention, the lowering of acquisition costs, and the improvement in lifetime value spend of players because they're getting value in these games rather than not. So a bit of a long-winded answer, but I think there's many, many approaches. I think in general, the approaches have been too heavy on upfront monetization and barriers to entry. And in order to really prove out this thesis, we need to have games with 10 million DAO within the next 18 months, which I think we'll absolutely get to. I think that game will quite frankly be on. I think we have three or five on Immutable, which have that potential today. Something you said earlier really struck me in that how building on Immutable is in effect uh, permissionless. Like people can build on there and you wouldn't even know it, much less that they had to ask you, which to me strikes me as like such divergence from what it would be like to build on Microsoft right now. And so we've also just been reading recently that some well-known games have been migrating from other chains onto Immutable X. What do you think is making people make that switch, which can't be easy to do? Yeah, I'll touch on the first piece first, which is obviously Ethereum or any blockchain platform is by definition permissionless to build on, to build smart contracts on. But permissionlessness is only as useful as it is easy to build. And blockchains are the most difficult programming platform to build on that has pretty much ever been invented. The language is relatively simple, but the concepts to generate secure smart contracts that achieve what you want to with reasonable gas efficiency is basically an impossible task at scale. And if you're running a platform that requires people to learn Solidity or even new proprietary languages, as we're seeing with these new blockchains, you're basically running a 5 to 10% failure risk where 5% to 10% of the games building the platform are going to have some form of smart contract bug or security flaw. It's inevitability. And all of those user funds are going to be reputation losses for not just those games, but that platform as well. And so our approach is, it's important to be permissionless, and we are, but it's also incredibly important to make it as simple to build on as Stripe. And the reason Stripe was able to grow is they couldn't talk to all of their customers. What they could do is make it so that they could build their first, like they could get to their first payment or API call in five minutes. And we have very, very similar goals, right? So we've had marketplaces build in two days with two people working on it, on Immutable's infrastructure. And that's because it's all completely API-based. You basically never have to touch smart contract and everything you're requesting is, is kind of done by endpoints. And we're exposing all of these trade orders to any marketplaces as well. So we're sort of sharing liquidity with anyone wanting to use the platform, which means everyone is constantly getting better prices rather than sort of different forms of siloing occurring. The second question was, Zach, what was the second question? I forgot it. I think you covered it. Was it was about people switching from other chains. Yeah, look, it comes down to sort of a few main dot points. Security, people are very much preferencing Ethereum and ZK rollups, especially in a world of FTX. There is no clearer deprecation of authority or fund raised being a source of security as really just you have to go back to basics. Assume everything's going to fail in that failure case. What is your security? What is your level of permissionlessness? Where are your user funds? And so when games ask this to us, I say, we could very well go away. And obviously we won't, and that's not the plan, but that's what people should be asking. If Immutable goes away, what happens to my users' assets? What happens to the security of funds? And they can always withdraw to Ethereum. These are assets that live counterfactual on Ethereum layer one and, and via ZK rollups, which inherit the security of Ethereum. 
The second thing is developer experience. I touched on that. I think that's massive and ubiquitously done incredibly poorly across basically every L1 or L2 today. The third, I think, is which has been increasing, which I'm really excited about, is the distribution and power of our global order book. So one of the unique things about us that kind of differentiates us from just the blockchain itself is not just you don't pay gas fees on any trades, but you connect to every single marketplace when you sell an asset. So you could sell an asset inside of Alluvium, and that listing will show up on GameStop, on Rarible, on Aqua, on Nifty Gateway, which we just announced, on every single marketplace integrated with our protocol. The reason this is so significant is it means you're going to get way more demand than you will on other platforms where you can only list on one marketplace at a time. These marketplaces have more volume to fulfill and to trade against. So they have way more opportunities to differentiate based on user experience and, and the value they're bringing to end users. And finally, cost and economics. We've barely seen what the scale of blockchain games will be. The biggest game by numbers of assets is literally God's Unchained still today, which has sort of in the low tens of millions of assets. When you look at what will be the true scale of games with, say, 100 million active players, when you look at some of the biggest games today or even beyond for games like Fortnite, them trading just a few assets per day is billions of trades daily. Over a year, you're looking at tens of billions of assets being generated and trading around. If you have a cost of even a cent with those, which is what the cheapest layer ones or layer twos can offer, it is too expensive. You're looking at literally hundreds of millions of dollars of cost of goods traded either for users or for developing platforms on an annual basis. Our thesis is very simple, which is make it completely free to create economies. Make it so games can afford to just make an economy real, and instead they can align incentives by taking clips over time. And we're also the only protocol today that has guaranteed enforceable royalties. Obviously, there's been these massive debates with uh, X2Y2, with Magic Eden, and sort of the game theory of this on blockchains where royalties aren't enforceable. We think it's incredibly important that they are. Otherwise, you cannot have aligned incentive monetization. You cannot have a business model where they don't have to extract value by selling assets up front. They can take clips over time. Again, a bit of a long-winded response, but I think there's many reasons. Games choose us for many different reasons. Enterprise clients, security and reputation is always paramount. They will not go past that. But other ones, our services are incredibly important. For other ones, it's our distribution. Mm, yeah, that's definitely a lot of reasons. It's interesting to hear you elucidate them. And again, we kind of gave your background at the beginning here. So, and you have a lot of experience. You think very deeply on this stuff. So you can see why people are very interested in what you're putting together. So you mentioned GameStop a minute ago. And you have the NFT marketplace that you launched out of beta into the hands of players, actually. Tell us how the GameStop community has responded. And especially in light of everything that's going on with FTX, crypto, digital ownership. What can you share there? Yeah. And funnily enough, I think I did do an FTX partnership, which was quite lightweight, but they were very sensitive to these kinds of topics. And so I think the community has been awesome. That's a really strong part of the value behind this partnership. And not only, I think, engaging in what we're building, but also playing all of the games building on the middle. And that was part of the reason we we're so excited about this, is to kind of create this army of players who, anytime a game wants to come and build on the middle, all of these people will instantly go and start playing their games and start joining their communities and start trading their assets. And I think that's such a powerful thing is to have this community that is not just focused on focus or money, which is what traditional communities are in crypto, but it's focused on the actual utility that is being brought. And so we have some really exciting stuff coming up here um, with sort of 
A, new launches in the marketplace, but B, some stuff with in-person sort of buy your cards in the store and they can kind of be redeemed. Also, we're excited to explore that. And the partnership has been super successful so far. So I think over eight figures in marketplace volume done on GameStop Marketplace and it's only been live for a month. That's pretty awesome. That's a big number for one month. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We've been very happy. Yeah. In the Gods Unchained uh, minting process, by the way, I play the game weekly. I finally got to Mythic once for a little bit. I was a Mythic rank and then I fell off a little bit. Oh, cool. But I win my packs. I've never never made it there. Oh my gosh. It was such a grind. I had to go and precariously like fix my deck in such a way that I was like, all right, this is the deck that's going to get me there. And I had to grind out over the weekend, but I play the weekend ranks, you earn points, you're able to get free packs. And the reason you're able to do that is because the low fees, because otherwise it would have been a cost, right? Every time I was trying to redeem. And then when I go in the store and I buy things off the points I make, those are actual cards that I can go take onto the market. So I really like that you guys have thought through this as what does this look like at mass scale? Because people paying $10 gas fees for a 10 cent card is not it, right? And I think that's been solved a lot with this layer two blockchain and solution. So let us know, you guys are building the future here, just kind of like the idea of tokenizing the world. What what does true ownership look like for millions of gamers in this sort of VR future that you envisioned? I think it looks like the concept of ownership not being something that has to be sold to them, but it's an expectation. In the same way that if you bought a house, your expectation would be that you'd be able to sell it, mortgage it, or rent it out. You have complete financial autonomy over what you can do with that asset. And that needs to become the default expectation for how people do digital property. Just because it's non-tangible, because you can't touch it, we suddenly take away every economic right associated with it. And it's crazy. Like it is genuinely crazy. And the only reason that it's happened is because the first digital assets were licensing or rental based assets. And then they quickly realized that they could own a completely captive economy where they didn't have to worry about sharing value on the secondary market. And so all of these people have tried to maintain the standard as much as possible. Everyone from gaming to software license vendors uh, to even the way we create sort of tradable instruments or, or financial assets on the internet today, which are ultimately not backed as we've seen from recent times. And so I think for games, it's a pretty simple proposition. If you spend 20 bucks on a John Wick skin in a Fortnite game, you should be able to sell that John Wick skin, or you should be able to loan it out or rent it to a friend or use it as collateral to go and buy yourself a house. And if it becomes particularly valuable and you want to be able to use your asset for that or put in an index fund or go long on it or go short on it because you think that Keanu Reeves is about to do a terrible movie. And this world is actually incredibly important. That's a trivial example, but we have derivatives markets and financial markets on things as simple as pork knuckle, because if the primary demand is there, these secondary markets will emerge and they're very powerful. They unlock a lot of financial access for a lot of people. So I think the next step is gaming will become this precedent and this prototype for how we empower digital asset ownership for everything. When you buy a term deposit, you should be able to sell it. When you buy a loan, or a a CD or some form of digital asset that is financial, you should have property rights over that in the same way. You should be able to collateralize it, lend it, and use it for whatever purposes. So I think this is incredibly important. And the platform that facilitates this needs to be decentralized, needs to be incredibly low fee, because the competitors that are currently trying to own this from the incumbents are trying to put 50% fees on this and trying to control, at the end of the day, what these property rights will look like. And it's incredibly important that we don't let that happen. And I think 
What's really important for everyone watching this to remember is that by default, things do not end up open, permissionless, and low fee. It is only through a great deal of effort that becomes reality. And when the internet was first being generated, Microsoft tried as hard as it could to make sure that it owned it. It was tens of thousands of siloed instances of Microsoft Services Network as an intranet across the world and said that the open internet would never be valuable or would never be something they could economically control. Thank God um, competitors kind of came in and, and ended up building out the protocol that we use today, which is incredibly robust, and the set of economics that we use today, which is much, much better for empowering billions of people into financial access. Like The internet has been the strongest force for, for globalization and income equality across the globe. We now need to do this for everything and for every form of asset ownership. It will take many decades to get there for everything, but the bones and the platform of what we established will be done today with game. Yeah, that's magical. It makes a lot of sense. I also just think about, it's difficult for us as humans to even wrap our heads around a lot of things. The concept of global warming and how that happens, just the concept of really large numbers is the thing that like the average, even super smart people who have advanced degrees in statistics cannot comprehend statistics on an intuitive level. Like they have to do the math and work it out and then like tell themselves to promise themselves that like this is true, right? And it's very interesting, like looking at digital assets this way, you talk about it very matter of factly because you put the deep thought into it, but it needs to become a general parlance for our society, just like things like intellectual property have, right? It's still to this day difficult to kind of wrap your head around the fact that I just had an idea and it's worth something and I could sell it and buy it to a corporation or somebody else or collateralize all these different things. But it is very well, true. What's blowing yeah. my mind is what Robbie just said, like, there should be even a derivatives market for that intellectual property and digital property. Like I never even considered like that that was important, but now it's starting to seem obvious that it only wasn't there because we weren't in a open and decentralized world. Well, and I worry about like deplatforming. So like if the world environment has to essentially read what's on the blockchain and then field the visuals of what that item is, right? within the world environment. So you need consensus and you need an environment where there's a group ability to build there. Otherwise, the centralized game developer could just be like, well, we're not going to incorporate this into the gameplay anymore. Or whoever's hosting it could say, we're not going to host that thing, that item, whatever anymore. And we've seen that in major players. I mean, Blizzard's probably got the baddest rap right now for doing things against the community, but they're not the only ones. And so, I mean, that's something I get a lot of feedback from when I talk about play to earn games or games within the Web3 environment. They're like, well, what happens when people don't want those items anymore? So Robbie, like, how do you address that to those people directly and their understanding of it's not like every other game that you've played where they can just shut it down? Like, is there a heuristic we can get people to visualize it a little bit better? Ultimately, it is right now. These games are centralized. They run on service. There's very little chance of those servers being completely decentralized in their logic. And I don't think that should be the future we try and build towards. It's not scalable. It's not the right approach. What is the right approach is aligning incentives. And that's where Web3 can fundamentally work. And I think that's really, really important, which is that at the end of the day, the reason that digital ownership works in Web3 at scale for primary assets like Ethereum and Bitcoin is because of robustness, but also because of incentive alignment. And as long as you can sufficiently align the incentives of gaming creators with the people owning these assets, you kind of solve these problems. And that is by making it so, a good example is look at Magic the Gathering today. 
at any point in time, they can say, well, let's take these old assets and let's make them way less valuable either by making a new form of competitive or ranked play, which no longer has those cards eligible, which they do all the time, or two, and I'm talking about physical cards here, they make new versions of those cards that are way more powerful. And that's how they monetize. They issue new primary cards every year. They would not need to do that if they could take clips on secondary trades of people just trading these cards around because the estimated secondary market cap of MTG cards is $20 billion. So if they could have had aligned incentives, aka if they could be taking clips on the economy, then their whole goal is just make MTG as big as possible, continually give back value to players and make all existing cards part of a valuable portfolio. And so I think the answer is kind of that, which is we will over time and we're recreating a lot of governance from scratch. You know, a lot of these incentive problems have been solved through inventions in corporate governance and sort of shareholder structures over the last century. We're now sort of having to rebuild the wheel in some cases, I think unnecessarily, but we are for whatever reason in Web3. And as we do that, we will figure out this is the right way to create a long-term economic model, which is, is completely incentive aligned. Then maybe the simpler approach, I think, is, well, yeah, the game may have a lifetime. But at least during that lifetime, when you spend 200 bucks on those cards over the couple of years, it has value. You can sell it. If you want to, someone else can build a new game from it, which we see all the time when games are deprecated. And maybe they can have a, a line in the policy of their game where they'll open source the code if they ever decide to shut it down. And so I think the answer is it's still infinitely superior to having zero value whatsoever. So a couple of approaches, there is no clean answer here, but the cleanest answer is it's important to give ownership irrespective of whether the games themselves are ephemeral because ultimately things will be. And the second is we have to align incentives, which is the most important thing we can do. No, I think that's great. And honestly, I think you said it so well. And this is why I wanted to ask you that hard, chewy question because the answer isn't decentralize everything and that's going to solve everything. It's aligning a sense of incentives and being like- And okay some people are trying to do that. And yeah. I yeah, I, know. I think it makes yeah. sense for some like gambling stuff, maybe where randomness must be on chain in order for it to be secured. But really, like even layer twos aren't going to be able to sort of transact at the, the speed you require for sort of um, synchronous input of, of like a multiplayer game. It's just leagues and leagues beyond what we can kind of stay update for. Uh-huh. All right. So you've made it obvious you've got an like an exponentially accelerating torrent of things coming up in the future and that what you're working on really is growing. So I want to kind of revert to the old school expert curation tactic of seeing what I should really be focusing on. So given like your awesome roadmap coming up, uh, can you shine a light on a couple of things that you think are most exciting that we should be paying attention to? Yeah. So I think in the short run, I'm really excited about Alluvium, who is launching two games, I think literally in the next couple of months. And this is zero and overworld to their auto battler and their sort of MMORPG collector game. And they are the 9,000 pound gorilla in the Web3 gaming space so far. I think they've done things right in the way that every single opportunity they've offered ever to investors have made sure to offer to the public at the same time. They have extremely high standards for sort of equality of ethics. And I think that's really valuable and, and has built a lot of trust with their community. So I think this is going to be extremely exciting. The game is very fun. And so I think that's important. There's actually not that many games that are live today that are just really fun to play. And I've been playing the, the Auto Battler beta. I was a big TFT fan back in the day and it compares very well. So I'm really impressed with what they've built. Um, Imbu, I'm really excited to see the sort of conversion of their Web2 gray market economy and monetization into a fully Web3 version. So very excited about that. 
Um, we have Ember Sword coming out early next year, which had over $250 million committed in land sales. Um, we have the MOBA by Amber Studios, which was Johnson, yeah, the, the CEO of Riot Games Asia, which I'm super excited about. We have Guild of Guardians, one of our portfolio titles, obviously, which we're, I think it just hits over 700,000 signups on the beta waitlist. So one of the biggest waiting lists in Web3 Gaming today, I think Luvium said in like 1.5 million. So yeah, we're really excited about this one. And I think it's going to be, we're focusing purely on how do we maximize engagement and basically player base and trading within that. But we're focusing much more on that than on primary revenues because we want to build this example of a game with millions of users because we think that will set sort of the playbook for everyone else. So those are maybe the big five I'd think about right now. And on the marketplace side, pretty much excited about everyone. Like all of these are, are sort of very substantial partnerships we're putting together with very serious players. So Nifty Gateway, I think it's going to be an excellent sort of port of call for people to enter the ecosystem. I think GameStop is going to be a massive player and they've already proven to be. Aqua is building exceptional dedicated user experiences. Highly recommend you to check it out, aqua.xyz. And they've built a, an amazing one for, for God's Unchained already. Cool. Oh. Now, what about outside of your ecosystem when you look for inspiration or things that fascinate you? We always like to give our listeners that perspective, like a deep thinker like you. What are you watching outside of what you're doing that's getting you excited? Yeah, I watch Web2 Trends a lot because obviously that's where the majority of like what has been built over the last five years and is now coming to fruition is coming. So I think the trend for UGC to be a bigger part of games is really fascinating the continual growth of Roblox has been really fascinating. The transition into like uh, hyper casual or kind of casual games or even games where it's like auto-played has been a trend over the last five years and we're incorporating some of that in Guild of Guardians. So it makes it much more accessible and you can kind of, it actually lends itself quite well to Web3 because you can focus on economics. I spend a lot of time thinking about how AI will impact Web3 and AI will impact the world as well. And I think that's because the fundamental rule of company building is commoditize your complements, very strong principle, which is if there are complementary goods to your product, make them as cheap as possible. And ultimately, the complement to games is the game content itself. It's what you play, it's the characters, it's the art, it's the 3D models and assets, which forms the biggest cost today that developers incur. And all of this is going to be completely AI generated over the next decade. We've seen the biggest transition to AI usage over the last two years for art and for copy with GPT-3, but art has been much more a commercial use case. And now we have it with DALI or with stable diffusion. And I think that what this unlocks is a very powerful set of creator economics for gaming, where I forget which director said this, maybe it was Steven Spielberg. I think he said, film will only truly become great when an 11-year-old girl sitting at home can make 50 bucks a $100 million budget film. Because that's when created, like human creativity is completely unbridled. And so I take a, a little bit of a different approach to the naysayers who say this is reducing human creativity, which is, I think, when you enable human thought to be able to produce anything without limitation on technical talent or the expense, you actually broaden how much can be built drastically. And so I'm really excited by how future games can be almost entirely user-generated and not just user-generated, but user-owned. People can be voting on what content they find the most exciting. People can be investing in or buying assets in projects that are user-generated that they find more valuable or maps or game modes or games themselves. And so I think if you look at a very long-term view, I think games will pretty much be all AI-generated. They'll have a huge level of 
real-time either UGC or AI-generated content. And all of this is going to be owned and valued and sorted by Web3. Because in infinite supply, the most valuable thing is curation. And curation is where humans provide unique input and value and where they can be rewarded for that unique value because of their contribution being ownable and then bought by someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really fascinating and fun, right? And it makes me think of some kind of sort of askew analogies, but I think it, it's fun to bring it up. Like yeah, I've been to Burning Man a couple of times and I think of it as like a lawless domain, right? But I learned something interesting when I was there, the importance of rules for having fun and developing creative things. And the example I always give was somebody had set up this thing they called the hug deli. And it was like a deli counter and it had a menu and it said different kinds of hugs that you could order. And somebody would be behind the deli counter and you go, oh, I'd like a bear hug. And then they had sides, like I'd like a bear hug and a kiss on the cheek or whatever. And people would kind of participate in this sort of game, right? And the interesting thing that was like a twist in the story there is when you showed up to that hug deli, you thought that the person on the other side of the counter was sort of somebody that was positioned there and informed on how to behave. And really the only information that that person had was the sign behind them there and the counter that was there. And then you realized that after you placed your order, you could jump behind the counter and you could be the person, right? Delivering the orders. And it's really like a nice kind of like organic instantiation of what you're talking about, right? We just want to generate rules like a set of rules that creates a landscape where people can have fun and they can make it unique and they can put their own twist on it and then just kind of let the enjoyment ensue, right? And let the creativity ensue. That's really cool. Yeah. You have questions about blockchain? Like how big of a block can you chain without throwing out your back? Or have you received that chain letter? How did you block it? And does blockchain taste better, barbecued or deep fried? (laughs) Luckily, you don't have to ponder these quandaries alone anymore because Blockchain Training Alliance is here to answer them and also train you in real world blockchain issues that will impact your business's bottom line and oriented future forward along the ley lines of the most important tech humanity has perfected since harnessing atomic energy. If you're into those sorts of things, Blockchain Training Alliance is a top leader in the field, counting among its clients IBM, Microsoft, Disney, Morgan Stanley, and many more, and offering a wide array of technical and non-technical courses. Whether you're a computer neophyte training for an incredible career in this new space, or a coding expert honing your skills, Blockchain Training Alliance will help you steer your ship home safely, filled with treasure. (laughs) Arg. So hurry and sign up for the Blockchain Training Alliance course that best fits your needs at blockchaintraininalliance.com. Use discount code EDGEOF for 50% off and start your next block today. Okay, great conversation, sort of learning about things that are relevant at the moment, but we really wanted to dive in and get to know you a little bit better with our next segment, Edge Quick Hitters. Fun, quick way to get to know you better. 10 questions, and we're looking for just short, single, few word responses, but feel free to expand a little bit if you would like. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay, awesome. What is the first thing you remember ever purchasing in your life? Probably a pack of gum. Yeah, it's hard to remember. Yeah. Nice. Well, it's like candy, but healthy, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's great. Better for your teeth, right? Than the sugar pops. All right. What's the first thing you ever remember selling in your life? I do remember this. It would have been a Neocat. Okay. Very relevant. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And you started young. <laughs> started <laughs> yeah. with well, you don't sell that much stuff when you're young. And I started playing Neopets pretty young. Yeah. Or a Neopet or an asset in, in Neopets. Yeah. I'm not sure if 
you can sell the actual pets. How appropriate. All right. What is the most recent thing that you have purchased recently? It would be Ethereum. Ethereum. All right. Yeah. Doubling down. Well, like a, a coffee this morning, but if it's something substantial than Ethereum. Yeah. yeah, either way. All right. Well, this is not financial advice, but this guy's pretty sharp. <laughs> All right. What is the most recent thing that you've sold? Tell me it's Probably Bitcoin to cost? trade in for your Ethereum. That would be interesting. No, no. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Well, I guess I sold, yeah, Aussie dollars. That's actually true. But no, I would have been in God's Unchained card. I trade quite regularly, but for some of the new experience reasons. Very cool. How about this? What is your most prized possession? My sauna. Oh, tell me about it, man. Your like, sauna. <laughs> I'm jealous. Yeah. Now, do you have like an yeah, so ice I, bath I, to go yeah. with that? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. They um, say, so I, yeah, heard, I heard there was the some, weekends. I heard there was some research about saunas that they've actually done studies and linked it to prevention around Alzheimer's disease. I don't know if you've come across that research. Well, I haven't read yeah, that I stuff, forgot. but yeah, big fan of Rhonda Patrick's research. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. Yeah. All right. If you could buy anything in the world, digital, physical service or experience that's currently for sale, what would that be? I would probably buy, definitely not Twitter. I'd probably <laughs> buy more Ethereum. All right. <laughs> Tripling down. If you could pass on one of your personality traits to the next generation, what would you choose? Optimism. That's great. Optimism is great. I actually need more of it. I have a good amount, but I need more. If you could eliminate... Your... Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say I could take his ATAR score. Pass that down. <laughs> there you go. If you could eliminate one of your personality traits from the next generation, what would that be? I'm very uncoordinated. Okay. So I right. get rid of that. Yeah. Get rid of the uncoordination. All right. Sounds good. And then what did you do just before joining us? on the podcast. I was at the gym, which I do every morning. Oh, nice. Working on your coordination, at least as much as you can. <laughs> and then finally, what are you going to do next after joining us on the podcast? I have a meeting, a meeting with Excel meeting. Yeah. All right. Get down to business. Sounds good. And then you should be clear-minded because of your exercise and a little bit of fun with the podcast, you're ready to roll. Hey there, NFT space cadet. Let's zoom in on the globe from outer space today to Abbott Kinney Boulevard in Venice Beach, LA. Let me show you a cosmic tech beacon that shines out among the bustle of fashion, art, and food there. It's a thriving software dev, data science, and design studio known as AE Studio, where scores of the sharpest minds have come together to help founders and execs create software and machine learning solutions that are not only profitable and increase our agency as humans, but that give us that warm, fuzzy feeling that elegant tech so wonderfully does. AE's breadth of talent allows them to build anything from instillvideo.com it's a health, fitness, and wellness app that makes your chakras tingle to award-winning brain-computer interface solutions that could quite literally bend our minds. Oh, and keep an eye out for Token Runners, their NFT white-label marketplace, as well as our highly anticipated NFT drop, Boomer NFT. Now, for all you DGENs who strive to shed the cummerbund and pearls comes a jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring partnership not seen since the heyday of Shaq and Kobe, it's called Edge of AE Studio, and you can find out all about it at edgeofae.com. That's right, this full-service, soup-to-nuts, end-to-end, whole enchilada NFT service can help you 
Yes, you, Randy. Launch your NFT project. Edge of NFT and AE Studio have come together like Voltron to get your project in gear so you can hightail it straight to the moon, stardom, and maybe even your own private yacht. Go to edgeofae.com to find out more. That's edgeofae.com. Actual results may vary depending on moon landing location, domain of stardom, scale and model of yacht, as well as weather scale model of yacht or actual yacht. All right. Well, that concludes our Edge Quick Hitter segments. Now we're going to move on to our Hot Topic segment. We have a special sponsored Hot Topic guest today. Her name is Tony Ty Sterrett, a filmmaker, interactive audio, a filmmaker. I like that idea. It sounds kind of fun. It sounds like you're like a little bit more chill. She's a film mac. <laughs> Just like to mac around the films. Okay. Interactive <laughs> audio pioneer, Web3 creator, and thought leader. Having grown up in and around the entertainment business, she knew she collided with something special when she learned about the NFT space. Tony co-produced and co-starred in the Gotham Award-nominated film August the 1st and has written, produced, and directed short films, commercials, and branded content for clients such as Pantene, Clinique, Nissan, and Kmart. On social audio, she's a co-founder of the Audio Collective, and she wrote, directed, and co-starred in a fan fiction version of Hamilton titled Hamilton, a perspective. She's hosted conversations for Amazon, Bumble, Coindesk, HBO, Walmart, and Showtime, and for talents such as Tiffany Haddish, Ava DuVernay, and Barry Jenkins, and more. We're thrilled to share that Tony is breathing fresh air into the space with an NFT project called Bad Girls with two R's and no I, Creative Club on November 29th, which uh, will be actually tomorrow from this recording date. We'll try to put a little bit of what out about that. So the Bad Girls Creative Club was the first NFT project to have a pre-launch artist in residence at the Green Space, home to New York Public Radio, which is WNYC or NPR, and other notable programming. The Green Space channels the collective genius of New York City to create forward-looking live art, theater, and journalism that sparks change. Tony is a member of Forbes, The Culture, via Forbes Magazine, and is repped by UTA. Tony, welcome to Edge of NFT. Today, we want to cover a few topics with you. It's really good to have you here. Thank you. This is cool. I'm Mac Films. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You heard it here first. Yeah, first question, just give us a little background. Why did you come up with that name, Bad Girls Creative Club? What sparked that? Okay, so I grew up in the entertainment industry in New York. And a woman that I know who's kind of considered a mentor, she wound up getting a job producing at, we're working with Netflix under one of their production companies. And I said to her back in like 2019, I'm like, hey, you know, I feel like I know a lot of you women in positions of power who can help me. And I don't feel like you guys are really supporting me. And she's like, well, Tony, you haven't worked at a studio or anything with us before or a record label or anything. So you're looked at as a party girl. I'm like, but how? I went to college. I graduated film school. I've done this. I've done that. I've directed all this stuff. She's like, oh, you have? Because she said to me, I posted too many bikini pictures. And I was like, I only have five in the past five years. And once was with you in Jamaica. <laughs> and she said to me, she said a lot of things, but I'll try to keep it short. But it was pretty insulting. And yeah. she told me that I wasn't Rihanna. Rihanna can do that, but you're not Rihanna. And I was pretty crushed because I was insulted that she looked at my Instagram, but never even bothered to look at my website and my work. 
And I she's think, known me by the way, I, I think Ben and Zach should be posting more bikini pictures. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking that. Yeah. I was like, miss right. work it off. Bad Boys <laughs> Creative Club now. is next. Bad Boys Creative <laughs> Club next. Seriously, I'm not joking. No, but it's like, so I'm like, why do we have to fit into these boxes and these narratives of what a professional woman could be, what a professional sure. man could be, right? It's like, I hate boxes because you miss out on all the joy that can be in a person. So Rihanna's Instagram handle is bad girl Riri. So I was kind of rebelling when I got on Clubhouse. I named my club Bad Girls Film Club because I was like, you know what? Can I curse here? If you want, go for it. Yeah, like, we'll just bleep well. it out. We bleep I'll it say, out and make sh- we just replace it with holy moly. Just be aware of that. <laughs> well, wow. I said, I said, <laughs> <just> F it. <laughs> I said, F it. I'm going to be a bad girl and I don't care. And I'm going to wear whatever I want to wear. And if people don't like it too bad, because I'd rather be me than to be a different version of myself just to fit into a system that doesn't care about me anyway. If I'm talented, I'm talented. Diablo Cody was a stripper and she wrote this amazing film called Juno and she won an Oscar. So please don't tell me that someone has to fit into a box just because you didn't go to the right school or live in the right towns or know the right people. So that's where the name came from. It's taking ownership. So it's not necessarily like a woman's project, but it is kind of getting people comfortable with being a woman at the head of it. But obviously, like, I like dudes, so I want dudes to be a part of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think a great book to read that I enjoyed was Lean In by, not Carl Sandberg, but Sheryl Sandberg. (laughs) Be an interesting mix of authors if you put those two together. But yeah, a couple of the things she mentions, which are things that you can apply to both females and just in general to anyone, right? It's like there's certain personality traits that are beneficial that people need to take on. And some of those kind of could be defined as what you're talking about being a little bit bad, right? Like being a little bit willing to kind of upset people or try something new or do something that's kind of unfamiliar, right? In the interest of progressing or kind of pushing your agenda forward or something like that. And so, yeah, I really resonate with that. And especially the side that you mentioned just around why are we here in the first place on this planet, right? To be who we are. (laughs) What else is the purpose of it, right? So if you can't be who you are before you die, why are you here? So do the best you that you can. Totally agree with that. Yeah. The world tells us to be ourselves, but not like that. <laughs> kind of <laughs> weird. Just be a different you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a relic, man. That's such a relic of like the past that people, we were told you have to dress a certain way, speak a certain way, fulfill a certain blueprint. And especially the upcoming generation knows that's not true. And it's crazy that you even ran into that in New York because that was the bastion of, I don't give a shit. I'm going to go out and do me. And like, so you still see some of those relics rolling around and saying, you got to do it, play by my rules to get in front. But you know what? You can go around people these days. And if the world vibes with you, they vibe with you. So mad respect for like saying, no, I'm going to do this. I don't care. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. The rule breakers, they set the tone and the iconoclast, they create the next movement almost every time. And usually that's the creative, it's the artist who move first. You've said that an inspiration for you is Andy Warhol's factory. Can you uh, elaborate on that? So yeah, so Andy Warhol back in like the 60s, early 70s, he had the factory. It was three different locations he would move around, but he kind of like curated these people around him, these creatives and this artists. He was making art and films. And then he had these actors and other artists like Basquiat and Eddie Sedgwick. How do you say her name? Sedgwick, Sedgwick, anyway. Edie. Yeah, Edie, Edie, Sedgwick, yeah. Edie Sedgwick, right? 
And just all these interesting people that wound up becoming like household names and just really important to the culture of art, music, fashion. And it's like, why not put them all together? I actually used to work with this former music industry exec. And about 10 years ago, he had this gallery in Tribeca and we called it the dojo because it was like a 24 hour karate school because you would go in and come out better. But like on the first floor, there was an art gallery. And in the back, there was a photography studio where they were working on a magazine. And the basement was like a recording studio. And you had like Most Def, Erica Badu, Black Keys, everyone recording there. And then on the second floor, you had like the offices where everyone would meet and there's beanbags and everyone's editing and stuff. And it was just like this everything. And then we had another space in the basement on the other side where there were performances and people would come and do shows. So that's something I want to recreate. And they used to compare that to Andy Warhol's factory. I'm really close friends with Fab Five Freddy. So he was good friends with Basquiat and with uh, Keith Heron and Andy Warhol. So I learned a lot about them. And Fab always tells me a lot about that time and even like the fun gallery with Patty Astor. So I sometimes I'm around him and I want to like relive what they did. And I feel like Web3 is kind of like an open lane for that because it's also a space where artists get equity. So with my project, and I've been very vocal about the fact that if anyone mints my project and trades it on in a marketplace like PseudoSwap, where they don't respect or honor creative royalties, then you're going to lose your utility. Because I got into this because it gives you equity, because a lot of artists and musicians from years ago, and even now, they're not getting equity off of their work. They sell it off or, or they just right. sell the painting and it's selling for $30 million after they die. And all their family has is like a magazine picture, but they don't get to participate in that. And I think that that's what's most important for me. I think dignity is a word I use a lot when I talk about like Web3 and NFTs, because I do think that a lot of people in this space, we are able to be ourselves. Like we're able to go to conferences and I don't have to bring a pair of heels if I don't want to. <laughs> you know, I don't have to. I can wear sneakers every single day, even on stage. I don't have to like be performative, like Zach was saying. So yeah. that's why I'm inspired by Andy Warhol. Yeah. Also, I'm curious, Robbie, you mentioned this sort of rise of user-generated content that you see, but you didn't touch upon the user-generated content that sort of affects people the way that Tony is mentioning, where it's like, oh, this is like, we're trying, introducing new and trying to change ideas. And like, how do you see the flow of kind of culture and information and trends and sort of like resistance to these things happening in the future? Look, personally, the way I view art and Bored Apes and things like the Bad Girls Projects is they're just basically DAOs. And DAOs are an incredibly powerful mechanism. They're completely flexible constructs of communal ownership where you can attach utility, attach milestones, attach governance to collate a group of people with shared incentives and common goals and get them to achieve um, X, Y, or Z, whatever X, Y, or Z is. I think it's going to be incredibly relevant. I'm extremely bullish on DAOs into the future, I think. I'm actually less bullish on like the... I think art has been a phenomenal use case for Web3, but the thing that really excites me is DAOs because they're much more scalable beyond the market of just like luxury art. And so I think we'll see. The thing I'm most excited about is probably solving collective action problems with DAOs where you can align incentives in quite profound ways where otherwise individual behavior is incentivized to sort of be selfish at the expense of the community. And now you can have people generate uh, communally good actions, which everyone is bound to do either like mutual subscription or bonding curves. So I, I actually think it has huge applications for things like climate change or social issues. So yes, I'll butt up that very bullish on DAOs, which I think is ultimately what projects like these are. Mm-hmm. I think DAOs are the epicenter of cultural catalysts. And that's what we're talking about here is creating culture through defined communities and having those defined communities reward each other. So that's really cool. And speaking of, you know, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your project and how you're planning to reward your community. Like what does this entail? 
What are people getting access to? What do they have to look forward to with this project? So we have a long roadmap. We're really building for like the next five, 10, 20 years. I'm trying to build something to quote Hamilton, the musical. I want to build something that's going to outlive me. <laughs> so what do you want, Burr? Okay, I'm going to stop. Uh, <laughs> so we're really building for the future. So my next artist in residency is at Zero Space in Brooklyn. It's a metaverse production house. And so there's VR, AR, like all kinds of things that we can do. So I started a residency there in January and just having people who are part of the community come down. And even like some people won't, are not in New York, obviously. So they'll be able to connect with us and join us virtually. And we'll just sit there and just hash out creative ideas and things that we want to do and build. And then also like funding creatives. I don't really like charity. I mean, there's some charities that are good, but the equity word will come up again. I think there's more equity in like funding someone and saying, hey, I believe in your project. Here's what you do. But I think sometimes when it's charity, it's like, I want to do a photo op and then that's it. But it's like put people in positions where they can meet the people who can help them grow and scale their businesses. I just really feel like there's a lot of untapped talent from like every hood in America to every barrio to the coal mines. And I I really want to find those people and like see what their ideas are and like have a community that's supporting them. So we're all kind of like cheering each other on and serving kind of like we are like, I guess, in the music industry, they would call it street teams, where the street team would go out and promote and do like this guerrilla marketing. We can do that for our own community and the projects and within the ecosystem. I have been really considering doing a DAO for Bad Girls Creative Club or turning it into a DAO. I've kind of like back and forth with that, but we'll see. I'm open to it. And there's always the possibility to turn a portion of it into a DAO. Because eventually, eventually, I know I have to wrap it up, but eventually this is all going to form under like a bigger umbrella. So Bad Girls Creative Club is just the first step of it. So yeah, just upskilling creatives. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds very exciting. And I like the overlap that Robbie brought in about the DAO structure and how DAOs mimic this kind of finding your community or building a community, right, that has shared interests and values and things like that. So something definitely to watch out for and look forward to the future of the project. Let's make sure people know where to follow you to know more about this, the website links, share all that stuff right now before we wrap with the segment. Yeah, my personal socials are Tony Thai, like Thai food, T-O-N-I-T-H-A-I. The Bad Girls Creative Club on Instagram and Twitter is at Bad Girls with two R's, no I, like you said, CC, so for Creative Club. And then the website for Bad Girls Creative Club is www.badgrlscc.com. And my personal website is tonithai.com, tonythai.com. Awesome. We also are blessed to have you contributing some NFTs for a giveaway which we'll share more about on our socials. But you said you'd give two NFTs to our community through a giveaway, and those are valued at 0.11 ETH each. So we're very privileged to uh, have you participating there. And preferably, I want to give like priority to people who are creatives, obviously. So Okay. Well, we'll, Yeah. yeah, we'll try to make the giveaway lean in that direction. Try to make some criteria that helps filter for that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tony, for joining us for our hot topics. And we look forward to seeing you again soon, maybe at NFTLA. All right, we'll catch you later. And now we'll kind of wrap up in general here. We want to just check back in with you, Robbie, and make sure that listeners know where to go to find out more about everything that you're up to. Of course, everything you'll have to list like 10,000 links, but <laughs> give us like the triage of like the top few things. No, pretty simple. Immutable.com has got everything. You can follow us on Twitter at Immutable or at 0 for me. There you go. That's Occam's razor right there. (laughs) 
All right. Uh, well, thanks so much uh, for, for you joining us. We will probably be doing a giveaway with your team as well, although you're not the lead on that, somebody else on the team. So we'll get the details together. And if there is going to be something, we'll share about that social as well. I'm looking forward, hopefully, to doing something cool. And that's basically a wrap for the episode. We've reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs for today. Thanks for exploring with us. We've got more space for adventures on this starship. So everyone invite your friends, recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey also much better. How? You can go to Spotify or iTunes right now, rate us and say something awesome. You can go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. Look us up on all major social platforms by typing at edgeofnft with no spaces and start a fun conversation with us online. Lastly, be sure to tune in next time for more great NFT content. And thanks again for sharing this time with us today. The views and opinions expressed on the Edge of NFT podcast reflect solely those views and opinions of the show creators and its guests. We're learning as we go, just like you. Please make sure to do your own research. Our podcast is not financial advice. There are multiple strategies and not all strategies fit all people. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk.